The Global Fragility Act was passed in the US in 2019, highlighting the pressing issue of fragility around the world. But how is it actually implemented? And how does this affect US foreign policy, particularly in Africa? This and more today on Trade for Peace. Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. The opinions and statements expressed in the Trade for Peace podcast are entirely and solely those of the guests and the host. WTO Secretariat takes no institutional positions on matters of policy or of the WTO membership. Welcome to Season 2 of Trade for Peace. In today's special episode, we have with us Dr. Joseph Sani, Vice President of the Africa Center at the United States Institute of Peace, the USIP. Dr. Sani has been working at the forefront of peace building with civil society, governments, businesses, and international organizations in Africa for over 20 years. He has carried out research, taught peacebuilding courses, and published scholarly articles on peacekeeping, peacebuilding, and civil society. Joe, welcome to Trade for Peace. Welcome, Axel. Welcome, and thank you for having me. Now, Joe, uh, it's been a, it's been I think over a decade and a half since we <laughs> we we last. Uh, worked on any issue related to peace. I know back then uh, you were working on peace building process in Liberia as we oh, yeah. went through the transition process. Uh, yes. It's been a long wave since Monrovia. What have long you been up to? And, and, and what, are, what are you doing these days at the USIP? Congratulations, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you, yes, it's been a long time, long time. In fact, so I joined USIP two years ago, the US Institute of Peace, and then as the first vice president for the inaugural Saint Africa Center. The Africa Center was just created uh, two years ago in 2020, but we have a long presence in Africa already. We, we have programs in about 19 countries in Africa, where our core mission in Africa uh, is really to elevate, expand the institute commitment to stem conflict in Africa. But before really diving into what we do in Africa, let me maybe situate and tell a little bit more about USIP as an institute in general, because yes, I think it is important. The United States Institute of Peace was established by an act of Congress and signed into law by President Ronald Reagan in 1984. Uh, and it was established as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated uh, to preventing, mitigating, and resolving conflict abroad. So we work mainly abroad, not in the United States, per se. We are exclusively funded by Congress. So we don't take private money. So that gives us some latitude 
And that makes us give us a unique character, uh, put us at the really forefront of an American peace building approach to the world. So we are really at the forefront of what America has to offer when it comes to peace around the world. And we work in terms in achieving that mission then of helping, preventing and mitigating conflict. We do research. We engage directly into peace sub, uh, process support. So we support negotiation, mediation. We do good offices. We implement program directly to partners uh, around the world. And we do a lot of research to inform policies. So that's in a nutshell what we do. We do the same thing in Africa, uh, where we have, in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, we have two major offices, one in Nigeria and in Sudan. And we operate in other, in 18 countries, through partners, uh, and or we engage directly with governments, civil society organizations, businesses, and a suite of security actors on the continent. Thank you, Joe. And uh, uh, I know you, you're very busy these days as you oversee the Africa portfolio uh, and, you know, the continent with so many uh, hotspots. Uh, uh, what is your daily routine like these days? I mean, what are the pressing issues of the day? I know everybody's talking about the conflict of Ukraine and the impact on food security in Africa, climate change. Uh, what are some of the hot topics and, and, and hotspots you're currently working on? There is no lack of hotspot on the continent, unfortunately. <laughs> so directly, we are really, so we are, as you know, we have the Africa Leaders Summit coming up. The, yes, yes, indeed. So that's really on top of my mind these days. But generally, in the normal day, since we took office, uh, we focus on the political transition in the Sahel and violence yeah. extremism in the Sahel. We, we are tracking the peace agreement in Ethiopia and instability in the entire Horn of Africa. We are looking at coastal West Africa, where uh, the progress or uh, of violence extremism toward the coast from Sahel to the coast. That's something we are very concerned about. And we are also looking at Central Africa, the Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Sudan, and we are tracking uh, Northern Mozambique with the insurgency of violence extremism in, in, in Cabo Delgado. And we keep a watchful eye on the incoming elections in Nigeria, DRC, Congo. Um, so those are the issues on top of our mind. And we also, of course, we are tracking the good work that frontline peace builders, women, youth, are doing on the continent uh, to prevent violence extremism, to resolve conflicts, I think we are encouraged by and inspired by the work of our partners uh, in really addressing root causes of conflict in Africa. So, so at the same time we have challenges, and the same and at the same time we are also inspired by the work that uh, our African partners are doing to really address those issues, those issues of conflict. So it's a kind of mixed bag. And you know, as you as you know, I mean, in our discussions when we met, we talked about uh, the nexus of trade and peace, and uh, you know, and you know, there are lots of uh, evidence of both sides of the equation of the argument uh, that you know, trade can uh, contribute to conflict, 
or it can foster peace, depending on the context, the environment, the geopolitical situation. Um, given the countries you're currently working in, do you see an opportunity for trade in driving and fostering inclusion and peace in, in these uh, uh, fragile situations? Definitely, yes. Let me say that, and then let me congratulate uh, the WTO for taking this initiative head on. I think that nexus between trade and peace is so critical because where there is trade, trade is fundamentally based on interdependence, right? So when people trade, they don't fight. They fight, maybe they compete, but they may not fight, right? And so, and trade is also a vehicle for, to prosperity when it's done right when it is inclusive, when it also uh, creates more opportunities. So I think trade and people are, people are right to say trade not aid because with trade there is exchange of expertise of good and money, et cetera, we create wealth. We can create wealth through trade. And so this, this nexus and this tool, uh, I think is not the whole solution, but it is definitely part of the solution, an important part of the solution, particularly in countries where uh, we work and countries affected by conflict. Uh, because stakeholders involved in trades uh, bring new connections, bring new resources, uh, force a new way of thinking uh, that is conducive to resolving conflict. Because you don't want, I mean, trade is just difficult to do business if bullets are flying. I mean, legitimate business, I mean. So uh, people involved in trade are more likely to look for solutions to promote peace um, than to wage wars. But it is important to recognize that for trade to be inclusive, for trade to lead to peace, there must be a political will to create the conducive environment for trade to be successful. So in countries where we work, I see trade as a potential instrument to bring peace. Why? Because when there is trade, there is what we recognize in conflict as interdependence. So there is interdependence when there is trade. And when there is interdependence, people, you realize that your well-being also depends on others' well-beings, right? And so you are more invested in making sure that there is a conducive environment for a productive exchange for both parties or for the parties involved in that transaction. So trade is also an instrument of peace when done well. Done well means when the trade is inclusive, when there is shared prosperity, and when there is mutual benefit for all involved. And so for African countries and countries affected by crisis, I think we can, they can harness the potential of trade to advance peace. Thanks for that, um, Joe. I would like us to talk a little bit about uh, some of the points you made and, and how important uh, 
that exchange uh, is in terms of fostering peace. I mean, one good example is the Africa Growth and uh, Opportunity Act, AGOA, yes. which is said to have created hundreds of thousands of jobs uh, across the continent and driving uh, small businesses uh, inclusion into bigger uh, sectors and, and global value chains. Uh, do you think that's one clear example of, of how U.S. trade uh, policy is delivering impact in terms of uh, economic empowerment uh, and can showcase how trade can be used and is being used as, as to foster peace? Definitely. Agua was a great instrument. Unfortunately, it's set to expire 2025. But Agua gave us a good illustration of how trade can be an instrument of economic inclusion and therefore uh, of peace and stability. Uh, Agua helped lift small businesses, lift people out of poverty in many countries. I mean, Ethiopia, Kenya took advantage, Madagascar, all these countries took advantage of Agua uh, to really export African products. There were more than 6,500 products, African products, that were uh, uh, targeted by Agua. And that was a positive framework. But I will also say uh, it is important for the U.S. and African countries to bring back uh, or to raise the conversation around the Agua or what will replace Agua. And I hope that the African Leaders Summit will provide that opportunity right, to have those conversations on what's next after Agua. But more importantly, I think African countries are not sitting there and waiting. They have recognized the importance of trade. And we know now the African free continental uh, trade area is a reality, right? It's a reality. And Absolutely. that's also a space uh, because, and I will, I will go as far to say that it is a recognition that conflict or peace will only be possible, and Africans recognize that, that will only be possible if we increase the amount of intra-Africa trade. And I think the yes, Africa indeed. free trade uh, area is is a key illustration that the value Africans are putting into this instrument, the, 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 the trade. And I raised the Africa Free Continental Trade Area to illustrate what we have been talking about, we have been talking here, the importance of trade in promoting stability, right? Yes. And I hope that, it is my hope that um, during this summit, we will find, we will discuss ways to uh, speed up the operationalization of this uh, free trade area and promote and lift up the intra-African trade. As you know, unfortunately, Africa is the region that uh, trade less within itself. Uh, yes, I think yes. in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's less than 15%, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And so I hope that with the- One more trade, yeah. So uh, with this instrument coming life uh, uh, will help speed up that trade. And guess what? It is estimated that uh, it will lift up, I will lift out of poverty more than 50 million Africans. So I think 
with that reduced the risk of conflict. There is that Indeed. clear link between not that poverty cause, co uh, causes conflict, but poverty is a breeding ground right, for conflict. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Joe. I would like us to talk a little bit about the the U.S. Africa Leadership Summit. I attended the last one uh, a couple of years ago under uh, the Obama administration. Uh, there were a lot of expectations and 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 some new policy um, instruments came out of that one. I remember Power Africa, which is is driving a lot of new innovation in terms of energy security across Africa. Um, what do you think are some of the expectations? I mean, especially under the peace building pillar. Recently, uh, I mean, in 2019, uh, Congress passed the Global Fragility Act. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on the act and, and what are the implications for countries in conflict across the continent? Thank you for the question. I think uh, the Global Fragility Act, uh, just to, for, to remind our audience, was signed into law in December 2019. Right, it's a bipartisan congressional support. It's, it's a new approach uh, that recognizing that previous U.S. intervention in conflict areas was overly militarized, and so this approach really makes sure that we, the United States has a long-term view, a world-of-a-government approach to addressing the root causes of conflict. So. It is really a new approach to the way U.S. does peace building around the world. And I think that uh, it provides the United States and partner countries with the opportunity to have a long view, so a long-term view, and to, dip, and to dig deeply to dive into the root causes of conflict rather than just addressing the symptoms and using the wrong instrument, the military instrument. So he wants to harness the whole power of the United States government with our partners, local partners, target the countries affected, and the international community to address the causes of fragility. So I think it's an innovative approach. And I think that uh, it's one that carries the promise of, I think, sustainable impact. And USIP is... is, is doing any programs uh, under this, uh, in in line with this uh, act currently? Yes. So the act was inspired by a USIP-led tax force. It was a tax force on extremism in fragile states. So the USIP set up a study, a senior study group, and based on the conclusion of that study, uh, senior study groups, we inform and inspire the global foundation. That's the same. So the act was signed in 2019. As remember, I said one of the key features of the act is long-term planning, long-term view, 10 years, right? And so we are at the stage where USIP, we are working with the US government and the countries to start designing uh, the long-term plan. We are supporting. Uh, there are couple, many agencies in the US government. Uh, conflict and stabilization of uh, bureau, USAID, DOD. So we are supporting that process. And for the moment, the act targets 
five countries and a region. So you have Libya, Haiti, uh, Mozambique, uh, Papua New Guinea, and Kosa, West Africa. So we are working with all the stakeholders to design those plans. Uh, and then we will then implement programs as a result of those plans. So the planning process has begun with uh, uh, in collaboration with all the stakeholders, including the countries. And that's also the, one of the key features of the Global Fragility Act, which is local, local uh, stakeholders should be consulted and be part of the solution. So there is an element of local ownership, which is also new. Absolutely. Emphasis on that. Yes. I know one of the things I often uh, think about, you know, back then working with the whole uh, disarmament, demobilization, rehabilitation, reintegration process in, in Liberia, um, it almost seemed that uh, stakeholders uh, operated in silos, you know, the, the peace building, peace and security uh, 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 stakeholders, you know, operated and, and, and initiated programs within their community, they trade, private sector business, community operated, you know, their programs separately. And and, and you really did not have any sort of uh, uh, interagency engagement across those uh, silos. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Now, this, uh, uh, this act, uh, is this act uh, and some of the programs that is coming out of this going to facilitate some of those exchanges? So there are long-term uh, development programs that put in place uh, not only in terms of peace and security, but uses uh, trade and investment uh, as a vehicle to foster uh, peace. Yes. So back in the days, I think you are so right. I, I, back in the days, it was a stovepipe approach. It was really a stovepipe approach. It was okay. You do your thing on your lane. Stay on your lane. That was it. That was the motto back then. Stay, stay on your lane. Stay on your lane. I think we realized that. There were some duplications, waste, and then we lost in terms of synergy, right? And I think that's that's also the strength of this act, which is it forces players, it forces stakeholders to work together. That's why the planning is so critical, because during the planning phase, all stakeholders are working together, defining priorities together. That's one, right? And also through the act. They are looking at mobilizing resources together. So multi-donor fund, for example, burden sharing. That's the ethos of the act. So recognizing mm -hmm. that even though the American, the US is putting $1 billion for the next five years, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. The billion dollar is a way to attract other investment, recognizing that we don't only have we don't have the, 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 the expertise. I mean, the issues are so complex that you need all agents working together. And I think that's the core. And unlike what we did 15 years ago, Axel, yeah. what we did in Liberia 15 <laughs> years ago, if, if the act is implemented according to the law, to the intention of the legislator, I think we will be, resolved, we will be solving that issue and avoiding that duplication and the stovepipe approach. Which, frankly, if you ask me, remember in Liberia, you had, first of all, we had the government was stressed to thin, the Liberia, the newly formed yes. Liberia government was yes. stressed to thin, <laughs> and then they have to talk to 10 partners the same day. They don't Absolutely. have So <laughs> if they can be in one conversation with all partners, 
roving together the same direction, I think we have, a, that will save time, resources, and really headache, frankly. I remember those conversations in Mamba Point. It yes. was, <laughs> you know, too, too much headache. I was just asking, yeah. And then especially for governments with very limited resources and uh, uh, in terms of human capacity to really uh, bring that level of expertise to be at the table to talk on some of these very technical issues and 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 and, and advise on on the direction a country should take in terms of their you know their recovery or the emergency program or the development plan. Yeah, now you don't yes. speak on that point. That's also one whole USIP wants to pay, provide the capacity to the yeah. local actors to be effective partners in those conversations around Absolutely. the and the planning. So that's something we are doing at USIP, working with, for example, the governments to identify the capacity needs and the gaps and see how we can strengthen those capacities so that they are really effective. Because local ownership also requires local capacities. Absolutely. It's a good term to have. Yeah, we encourage local ownership. But, you know, to locally own these programs, you need the capacity and the resources to locally own them. And that's where USIP also comes to play here uh, by providing those uh, that support that's needed. Yeah, I know um, that uh, Honorable Samantha Power, uh, the head of uh, USAID, has been pushing for greater role and participation of local actors and, and yes. to see that uh, programs... Uh, uh, bringing in and empowering local actors from design to implementation to monitoring and evaluation and reporting. Do you see uh, some of that now being translated uh, in other sectors under the Biden administration, you know, other organizations uh, like the DFC, uh, MCC, um, that are that are funding bigger programs, but, but looking at uh, the role of creating local ownership for driving uh, pilots that are scalable for impact? Yeah, I think, let me just say this. I think the Biden administration, when you look at the sub-Saharan strategy, uh, right? So the Biden administration has made it clear, I think, to their credit, really, that they will support African-led solution, I think. That they will not be the one but Africans yeah. will be the one driving, and they will provide support to African solutions. And we, even when you look at the Africans in the summit, the focus of the conversation among leaders, b- beside the bilateral discussions, will also be on the Africa, uh, the, the AU Agenda 2063. This is an African-design-led yeah. agenda, and the Biden administration also. So to their credit, they really, at least in all the pronouncements, they are really focusing on Africa, tell us where to go, and we will work together from there. I think that's 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 to their credit. Now, in reality, what we keep as an analyst and someone who also, as you do, focus on those issues, I think local ownership is a great thing, but it requires local capacity. You can, just a quick example, if I give somebody who barely lives who barely makes $2 a day, if I give him a Mercedes, do you think he will own that Mercedes? He can't even fill the tank because he barely has $2 to eat, right? So we have to make sure that when we say local ownership, we ask ourselves what is needed to own this. 
And how can we work with local actors so that they can sustain the solutions that they come up with? I mean, they are like the African Free Continental Trade Area. It is owned, led, designed by Africans, but we have to work with African countries to make it work, to sustain it. Not that we will be there forever, but together we can make that journey. And then as we grow together, we can sustain it. So I think beyond the commitment to local ownership, I would also encourage investment in local capacity so that we can actually sustain whatever we want to own. And at USIP, we, at our level, at least at the peace building field, we are cognizant of that fact and we have prioritized working with our frontline partners to build together the capacities and the learning abilities, right? To own whatever solutions we come up with as partners. Capacity will be the key, but it's a different approach to capacity strengthening. It's a different approach. It's one that is grounded on humility and honesty and trust and not yes, a condescendence. It's one that recognizes the gaps of the of both partners and work together to fill those gaps. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I find quite interesting when I travel across the continent is the energy of young entrepreneurs that are innovating uh, with or without local or, or foreign capital. And they're innovating to address challenges, capacity gaps within the economy, to, to address challenges they face in their own realities. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, back to the U.S. Africa Leadership Summit, uh, I know a lot of young entrepreneurs looking uh, to this summit with very high expectations to see whether uh, you, the U.S. private sector and private capital will be leveraged through USG partnerships with DFC and, and other U.S. government entities to drive targeted capital to some of those emerging markets where young people are innovating for growth. Uh, where do you see, uh, do you see that as some of the uh, issues that will be addressed that are being looked at? And in the context of peace, how would the USIP work in terms of promoting this nexus in terms of investment in peace building uh, as a means of also fostering peace? Yeah, let me just say that uh, I'm very excited with uh, about the Africa Center increasing focus on the private sector contribution to peace building across the continent. Um, and I'm also encouraged by the conversation we are having today and hopefully the partnership we may have with the World Trade Organization and kudos for taking that issue. I, I think uh, because it is important, that nexus is important. And you are right. 
point out the opportunity of the Africa Leaders Summit. I think that in three days, you can solve that issue. What you can do is to elevate that issue in the agenda, that issue of how to invest, how to facilitate investment in Africa, and particularly targeting young entrepreneurs, benefiting young entrepreneurs, and engaging young entrepreneurs, facilitating access to funding capitals and, uh, and resources, and also expertise. I hope that the summit will elevate that conversation, will put some emphasis, but it's just the beginning. It's a starting point, I hope, that we will you take this opportunity to create the passerelle, as we say in French, to create those bridges, right? To build yes. the bridges between the tremendous funding and investment of potential that exists in America and expertise with African young entrepreneurs, creative talents, etc. Uh, but that's just the beginning. We can't just put it on these three days. Uh, it is, we should consider this. I always want to say what matters to me is what will be the headlines after the summit and what will yes. we be working on after the summit. I think that's, for me, the post-summit is more important than the summit itself, even though the post-summit is de defined by what happens in the summit. But the most important thing to watch will be follow up. the follow-up, right? And so yeah. I hope that the, the issues we are raising now will be part of a concerted effort, the follow-up post-summit. Coming back to the United States Institute of Peace, as you know, our mandate is to really focus to prevent and resolve conflicts, and then we recognize that trade is a strategic instrument in doing so. So what we have started, we have we are convening conversations between the leaders of the business sector and peace builders, because we think that nexus is still very under-conceptualized. The WTO has been yeah. on the forefront of that conversation, but I think we need to have more of that. We need to really conceptualize how the business sector can become a champion or can promote peace while, while supporting the bottom line. But really, uh, so, this year at USIP, we are focusing on that conceptualization of the yeah. of that nexus. And so we are organizing convening conversation with experts, business sectors, peace builders. The next thing will then be after those series of conversations, see, identify entry point for actions. Yeah. How, whether it through capacity, through more research, or through uh more direct interventions. In that into that nexus. So that's in the next two years the work we'll be doing. And then we hope that with organizations such as yours and others, we will try to enrich our understanding of that nexus and actually operationalize some of the actions uh that will emerge from that. Uh, and I, and I, yes, and I you're absolutely right. I think this uh this is some of the issues of concern when designing and, and driving the Trade for Peace program uh, that was launched to assist countries in transitioning from fragility or conflict to stability and economic well-being through one process through the WTO accession. Um, yes. You know, actually there are about 10 of the 24 governments in the process of acceding to the WTO are considered by the World Bank as fragile and conflict-affected states, and half of them are located in Africa. 
Now, the U.S. Fragility Act does highlight that the cyclical, and I quote, the cyclical nature of fragility and economic prosperity, fragility and conflict undermine economic prosperity and trade, and a lack of trade and economic prosperity undermines peace and stability. And so um, this is one of the key drivers of the Trade for Peace program is that, yes, you know, just when you just think about reforms, and I gave you Liberia as an example, uh, some of the policies and initiatives we put in place uh, in terms of reforms, uh, by just uh, adopting new policy instruments or uh, passing new regulations, you can quickly begin to transform a sector. You know, by liberalizing a sector, you can attract foreign investment that begin to unlock the potential in the in the particular sector and create inclusive prosperity for all. Now, is it perfect? No. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. But it is important that uh, this nexus is further explored and, and, and more thinking from different organizations across the globe look for ways to see how those tangible solutions uh, that bring all of those stakeholders together to work together to impact the lives that matter most. And at the end of the day, you know, it's by people, right? Yeah. And so, you know, in 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 your view, um, moving forward, let's say, okay, we have the, the the leadership summit. You know, there are lots of photo ops, there are lots of big pronouncements. And you know, you you like you like I said earlier. You know, sometimes uh, the biggest challenge is sort of the follow up uh, to make sure that uh, some of those commitment uh, are translated. Is the USIP working across agencies to see how they can support uh, governments that are coming to the summit and, and and support their full participation in the summit? Oftentimes, delegations are very stretched across meetings, across, I know, I, I remember the last one, you know, <laughs> I spent, you know, the days in meetings after meetings after meetings and with very limited uh, team of technicians to really uh, uh, fully engage. Um, will there be uh, partners like USIP working with uh, different governments uh, that are coming to participate so that they truly benefit from the summit exchanges? Yeah, so we have been preparing. So I told you at the beginning, what is my mind is the summit. So we are quite involved in helping our partners. We are we are working with um, embassies here um, and different governments to see how we can they can harness really the potential of the summit. Uh, one of our priorities at the Africa Center USIP is to elevate African voices, right? So I think it's also providing them with the platform to show the to express their interests their aspirations and their ambitions to explain those and at the same time we are we have a beautiful building and so we also offer our building for bilateral meetings right again Wonderful. the role here is we believe fundamentally that there is a win-win opportunity here for the US government and for our African partners. So we work with them to identify the opportunity and see how we can support them, harness the full power and the potential of this summit. But again, as we, we agree, it's not just about the summit. Right? The yeah. summit, for some, is just the beginning of a long journey. I like to say any long journey starts with the first step. And the summit, we started from the American side, the U.S. side, it started with the sub-Saharan strategy. Right, so this is a follow-up 
from the sub-Saharan, uh, the sub-Saharan African strategy of this administration. The summit is a milestone, but there will be, I hope, there will be more milestones. And it is in that logic that we work with our African partners to prepare them and tell them, hey, this is an opportunity, but remember we are in the long game here. The US yeah. government is in the long game here. And the paradigm has shifted. The US and the Biden administration, President Biden and, to, and uh, Secretary Blinken said, said it, the Africa is a geostrategic part. We cannot resolve yeah. the issues the global issues we are facing without Africans. And so I think, and for our African partners and for African countries, this is a moment to seize. And yeah. we at USIP, we will work with our African partners to help to uh, contribute and help uh, uh, African partners seize this moment. I think it's a critical moment and the summit is a critical milestone. And as a peace building champion, do you foresee any big uh, peace building, uh, peace and security announcements during during the summit? I'm not a fan of announcements because pledges have been made. I mean, the U.S. government yeah. have made this pledge with the Global Fajit Act, one billion dollar in five years, you know, and then we are there for ten years. So pledges have been made. Pledges were made in Paris during the COP. I mean, pledges. Now I think I'm more interested in. What do we do to move forward, to move beyond announcements? I think that's the focus. And I think that the African countries have a template, a roadmap in the AU Agenda 2063. For Absolutely. me, as someone working in the peace building, I'm looking at what can be done around silencing the guns, for example. Indeed. Right? What, as we are talking about trade and peace, what will be done around the Africa Free Continental Trade Area? What are the concrete steps? What will be done around Agua, right? What will be done about the digitalization of Africa, which is one yeah. of the flagship Africa? The AU2063 agenda has 15 flagship projects. If we can yeah. just focus on that and see what can be done around the African free trade area, silencing the gun, the high-speed railway yeah. system that can connect the entire Africa. Mm. So mm. for me. It's not about pledges anymore. It's about, okay, we have a roadmap. So the United States said, we want to listen to Africa. We want to push, support your solutions. The African comes in and say, we have the AU 2063 agenda. We have it. So let's put our mind together and see what can be done. So I don't think it's a moment to have to. And then I'm looking also what can be done to restructure global institutions to so that to recognize the geostrategic role that Africa is expected to play. Mm. Like the, the multinational development agency, World Bank, the IMS, the UN, what can be done to reform those institutions so that Africa actually fulfills on potential? And so those are the things I'm looking, not any big announcement, but really yeah. what are the next steps? after those pledges, uh, pledges and commitments that have been made. And a lot of the, the, the heads of states that are coming are, are coming from the recent uh, summit on industrialization. Uh, and as you know, Africa is committed for a push uh, to industrialize. And uh, there's often this uh, expectation of a balancing act in terms of climate uh, change considerations. Uh, 
versus uh, creating new jobs and opportunities for a massively growing youthful unemployed population that is leading to insecurity across the continent. Um, how do you see this being played out during <laughs> during some of these discussions around peace building or around the, the, the summit? So, I mean, people are still preparing for the summit, right? So the summit will happen in two weeks. Uh, but I, I think... Uh, I hope that African countries come with unified position. I think and a unified negotiation strategy. Right? That's important. So I think, and then I I really count, I hope that the African Union can be a facilitator of those conversations. Because my my biggest concern is that we are lost into bilaterals. I know bilaterals mm. are sexy, they are great, but you know, if you talk, you focus too much on bilaterals, with uh you may end up competing among yourselves. Yes, indeed. So that's something that we have to be careful. Yeah, bilaterals are great, deal rooms, etc., are great. But we also Africans will also have to put an African agenda forward. And you touch an important point, youth and industrialization and climate change, etc. I think there is a potential here. Africa has more than 60% of unused arable land. And agriculture and agribusiness offer tremendous employment opportunities. N- not just opportunities, economic opportunities, but employment opportunity for youth. And also, we are facing food insecurity, my brother. <laughs> Africa is facing yes, food insecurity. Absolutely. And so, dev- how can how can investment be made in developing the agricultural agribusiness sector? Not just only not only to address food insecurity, but to create jobs for youth. We have talented young people who are just like they are just young to realize their full potential. How can we direct those investments into youth entrepreneurship? And frankly, Africans are not sitting around waiting. I mean, we have initiatives. Government are trying to do their best, but I hope that there will be conversation on around youth employment, youth entrepreneurship, uh, new value chains that can create those um, employment opportunities. And then I believe in agriculture. Yeah. And I, I also hope that in those conversations between trade, uh, I mean, the nexus between trade and peace, uh, there is a big elephant in the room is infrastructure, right? So, uh, absolutely. And particularly energy. And that's, to your point of uh, that transition. Let me just say that Africa is not the biggest polluter, right? right. And, okay, so I, I, I think, and then Africa needs energy. Yeah. Africa will have to use the energy they have. Because even if Africa use the energy they have, they will not still be the highest polluters. Yeah. Africa needs energy, all forms of energy, and yes, Africans should be able to use the energy they have because they can't industrialize without energy. There's, it's not, there's no way. But at the same time, as we use the energy we have, we also have to keep an eye on innovative forms, uh, technologies that can get Absolutely. us out of uh, fossils uh, and that can help us address the issue of climate change because at the end of the day, uh, Africa is facing is carrying the brunt of climate uh, change. I think we should 
uh, as Africa tries to get to industrialize, yes, it has to use the energy it has, but with an eye towards more clean energy, uh, yeah. towards uh, more sustainable energies. Because, uh, access, you know, we didn't move from the stone age to the iron age because of lack of stones. Right, right. The stones were still there, <laughs> right? We moved yeah, because yeah. there was innovation, there was technology. That's why we went to the iron age and uh, the information age we have today. So there, there may still be carbons, there may still be mm. all these forms of en uh, energy, but we have to recognize that we also have to move towards much more innovative ways of using energy. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, at the last summit, there were a lot of uh, meetings uh, with the U.S. private sector, you know, Corporate Council in Africa organized side meetings, bilaterals, uh, you know, to really try to stimulate the large corporations, you know, the drivers of the U.S. economy to look at Africa as new investment destination that look at African countries beyond the security risk <laughs> profiles uh, that are assessed, uh, but look for new metrics of assessing investment opportunities yeah. that can unlock the potential of, of sec uh, key sectors that would drive uh, inclusive growth across the continent. Many exchanges, many uh, potential collaborations. Now, in terms of how many of those exchanges and 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 are translated into direct, small, medium, or large-scale investments, that it's it's hard to really uh, report back on. Um, do you foresee some of these? I know these exchanges will be happening again and. and but as in as a peace building institution uh, that deals with peace and security across the continent, that is doing a lot of research uh, in terms of peace and security, the issue of of country risk assessment that really a lot of investors, you know, he's an investor is flying across the continent. He looks at you know if you want to land, you know, which country you know is more secure, you know, the government is transparent, and and all of these things. Is that an area in terms of, again, looking at the nexus between the, the, the trade and peace or investment and peace, is that something that USIP is looking at to develop better language, create uh, better tools to inform US private sector to explore you know, out-of-the-box opportunities across the continent? We are not that far yet. Uh, that's also in plans. But I, I see your point. And then I think President Makisal is making that point in terms of we need an African Risk Assessment Institute, right? That uh, there is an, an anthropological and cultural element to assessing risk. And that yes. people who are doing as risk assessment today don't understand the reality, uh, the fully comprehend the realities of uh, Africa and therefore uh, the assessments are biased against African countries, which is a reality, by the way. So there are come, I know we are aware of those conversations, but I think for me, what comes to mind is all about localization, right? Uh, it's, it's really, we have to recognize that there is local knowledge and that local voices matter. 
You cannot invest in Africa without listening to Africans telling you what's happening. I'm not saying that you take we take those voices for for what they are, but I think they should count. They should count. Local voices should count. Local opinions should count. And and talking of localization, I think my personal concern as an analyst, I'm not speaking on behalf of USIT, yeah, is that we are beginning to rely too much on even external investors, which may be a danger because there is enough, there are enough resources and potential within Africa itself to develop itself. Uh, we were talking about intra-trade Africa. If we can just raise from 12% to 20%, just within Africa itself, we generate the wealth that can lift Africans out of poverty, right? So there is so much potential on the continent that just recognizing that and putting system, you talk about policy reforms, the kind of policy that we enable African business to prosper by make, doing business in Africa, we lift Africans out of poverty. Right? So I, I understand that we are, of course, we need foreign investment, it's great, but there is already investment resources in Africa. If you see most uh, drivers of fragility in Africa, whether it is conflict or climate change, etc., the, the silver lining here is ineffective governance and lack of inclusion and economic opportunities. That's the key. Ineffective governance, lack of inclusion and opportunities for youth. Ineffective governance, the United States or Europe will not come and govern African countries for Africans. Ineffective governance would be fixed by Africans themselves. So effective governance will allow Africans to harness its own potential. And there is. A country like Nigeria, for example, I mean, tremendous research. We have billionaires, like three billionaires dollars in Nigeria alone. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, there, there is wealth in, 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 in Africa. A lot of it is, unfortunately, in the informal sector. I mean, if you look at uh, mobile money, for example, mobile uh, with mobile penetration, you're talking about over six, close to $700 billion in transactions that are happening, and mostly in, in the informal sector, in trade, uh, you know, where now the technology has allowed people to transact. You know, when I was a uh, minister, I know a lot of people, you know, refused to formalize their business because the process was a bit uh, cumbersome. Uh, exactly. You know, exactly. And, and and it was archaic, you know, the register of business, all these steps you had to go through. Exactly. And, and when I was to eliminate uh, some of those steps. Uh, and, and it wasn't for the lack of willingness to to formalize, just uh, they weren't ready for the bureaucracy that it entailed. And they didn't really, some of them didn't have the capacity to fill out those forms and go through that process. So you're absolutely right. I mean, there are transactions happening uh, and, and wealth being created. Uh, uh, many of it, much of it is is undocumented because of the lack of uh, the necessary policy or the business environment mm -hmm. to really create an incentive for for more formalized uh, engagements. Um, look, Joe, it's been wonderful talking to you. And I would like us to get uh, talk to you on a more personal note. Uh, we've covered a lot of areas, so thank you so much for the insights. Now, on a lighter note, uh, we have a segment of the podcast called Rapid Fire. 
Um, and the idea is we ask you uh, five short questions and you have 10 seconds oh to quickly respond. Uh, uh, and so, uh, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. So if you're up for it, uh, here we go. Um, question number one, uh, your favorite African leader? Democratic process. My favorite leader is the one who steps away from power. I have Mandela oh. in mind. Yes. Uh, a book you would recommend? Leadership uh, by Henry Kissinger. Oh, fantastic. An advice you would give to a young peace advocate? Don't give up. Peace is possible. Mm. And a personal goal of yours? Help the people I work with fulfill their own potential. And something you would like to see happen in 2023? Peace agreement in Ethiopia will hold sustained peace in Eastern DRC and Cameroon, peaceful democratic transition in Sahel countries and Sudan, peaceful and fair elections in Nigeria and, and uh, DRC. Wonderful. Uh, Joe, look, uh, thank you for your very insightful responses and for the conversation. Now, I'd like to end the podcast uh, with this last question. In just one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? Interdependence. That's the word I will see. With trade, there is interdependence. And where with interdependence, you increase the possibilities of peace. And so for me, it's Trade is interdependence and peace. That was Dr. Joseph Sani, Vice President of USIP. Interdependence. Very important in fostering peace. Joe, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace and sharing with us your perspectives and experiences. And thank you for the impactful peace building work you do on the continent. And to you and your team, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into our episode, our Trade for Peace Approach for African Stability. Don't forget to follow us on our social media channels. We are present on Twitter and LinkedIn as Trade for Peace. I'm your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace@wto.org, And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.